Before assistant professor Amir Gina came to the Harris School, he spent some time in South Asia working with the Red Cross and Red Crescent as a climate change expert. And something he saw there affects his work to this day. And I was doing some field work around Bangladesh where we were doing focus groups with different communities, trying to understand how they were adapting to climate change, how that related to the work that the Red Cross was doing, the Red Crescent was doing on disaster mitigation. The extent and the severity of flooding in Bangladesh is changing. Because they're expecting flooding each year, there's an extent to which any changes to the seasonal pattern will upset the balance of what they do. So if the area starts to flood a little bit earlier, even on the order of, of weeks earlier, this might harm the, the crop that they're planting before it starts to flood. It can also interact with other things that are happening in your life. So if you happen to be pregnant with a child, when this flood comes, then it can put extra strain or hardship as you're doing work at a time when you shouldn't have been. And so it's interacting with other parts of their daily life. And in one of those focus groups, I asked my translator to ask, oh, well, how many people here have lost relatives in, in or lost relatives or people they knew in, in recent disasters? And she asked the question, and around the room in this small community, probably about half of the people put up that over the last few years they had I'd recognize this. And then one woman started speaking. During a flood, as water started to rise, she and her husband had gone to save their livestock, which was kept a little bit away from their house. And this is a small one-room house. They had put their child, newborn child, on a platform. And by the time they came back, the child had fallen off and drowned. And, you know, it's a heartbreaking story. But what was perhaps even more stunning to me was the fact that she said it with such nonchalance. It was not something which seemed out of the ordinary. It came back to this idea of there being some injustice in how each of us experiences the same environment, but in very different ways. These days, Professor Gina is more often found in his office than out in the field. But he's never forgotten that woman's story, nor just how starkly changes in the weather can affect different demographics differently. Today on Radio Harris, we sit down with Professor Gina to talk about inequality in the environment, how things like rising global temperatures mean very different things to different populations, even within the United States. Stay with us. There's a kind of received wisdom within people who study climate change that poorer places are going to be more badly affected. So wealthier people are more able to deal with natural disasters, with climate change impacts, with the the way in which climate change can affect your economic well-being, which is in a large part through agriculture. There's fewer people in the U.S. dependent directly on agriculture, so it's less likely to hit people directly in that way. There's another aspect which is this thing which we, we learn about in economics called sorting. So you find that in a place with different productivity lands, you'll find poorer farmers end up occupying lands with less productivity. So you see more vulnerable people going to areas which have lower quality land. The same is true for disaster risk or for climate risk. You see people in cities across Latin, Latin America who are building houses on hillsides that are prone to landslides. And so there's this aspect in which people who are what we would think is more vulnerable to any of these hazards are already sorting into places where they're more exposed to them. So that's one of the reasons. And then I think it's, it's, 
in the case of disasters or climate change, it's just that the even if everybody loses the same amount, dollar amount of of money for a given hazard, as a proportion of their income, it's poor people who are losing more. So there's a, a larger welfare loss to those to those people. But what we didn't expect to see was to see that occurring within the U.S. itself and to be occurring in such a stark way. Professor Gina is talking about a study he and several colleagues published in the journal Science last summer. The study's authors looked at how six different economic sectors of the United States, such as agriculture, crime, and human mortality, changed in response to short-term weather fluctuations. The study authors then used that data to price out the potential future effects of higher temperatures, changing rainfall, rising sea levels, and bigger hurricanes on each of those sectors. You can go to www.impactlab.org to see the data for yourself. Click on any area of the United States, choose a year up to 2099, and you can see exactly how mortality, property and violent crimes, energy expenditures, and many other things are expected to change there as the earth warms. Professor Gina and his colleagues found that for each degree Fahrenheit by which global temperatures rise, the U.S. economy as a whole loses about 0.7% of its GDP. But they expect some parts of the country to be hit much harder than that. We were able to see what the impacts were under different emission scenarios. So when we plotted out these results on a map, we saw that the southern United States was really badly hit by climate change. And in the northern part of the United States, the effects are much more modest or even positive in the response of mortality to to temperature. You see that cold days uh, lead to excess mortality and hot days lead to excess mortality. And so as you shift away from the cold days, you get this benefit because fewer people are dying on because you, you have fewer cold days. In the Pacific Northwest and large parts of the northern United States, the temperature distribution is shifting out of the cold, but not enough into the hot to start harming people. So it looks like they're getting a lot of benefits. Meanwhile, in the South... Some places in, in Texas, Louisiana, Florida are losing 15-20% of their local income. And some places, you know, in Seattle, the Pacific Northwest in general is gaining 5% or so. So we didn't really expect to see damages that large or as big of a gap between the, the North and the South. And so seeing even within the richest country in the world that not only at a national level there was this, what I think is a large impact from climate change... But seeing the distributional effects of that was something that stunned us when we when we saw those results. And it's always been in our minds that, you know, disasters, climate change will exacerbate inequality in some way. And there's little pieces of research that I do that, that touch upon that. But seeing it come across in, you know, research which wasn't originally about inequality was a surprise. This isn't the first time that Professor Gina's work has yielded surprising findings. Another study he co-authored tests a long-standing economic assumption regarding natural disasters. And this is coming on the back of a, an idea in, in economics, which I think was never sufficiently tested empirically, that disasters should help the economy. That a disaster would come in, wipe out old, inferior capital, and you'd reinvest and create better capital, better factories, and your productivity would increase afterwards. And that idea is still quite strongly held. After Hurricane Harvey happened, the chairman of the New York Fed said the same thing to NBC News. This is a view which is overly simplistic, and it was never really empirically tested, and we wanted to step in and try and do this um, properly. 
by properly, he means that he and his co-author built an enormous database to track the economic effects of more than 6,700 cyclones, typhoons, and hurricanes observed between 1950 and 2008. And what they found did not support the notion that natural disasters help a country's economy by wiping out old, inefficient infrastructure. In fact, a major tropical cyclone can undo nearly four years of a country's economic development. Sure, an old factory might get knocked down and a new factory might get built that might be more productive. But if the hurricane didn't happen, you would have the old factory and the new factory. The economic losses from natural disasters such as hurricanes, he found, linger for decades. That's especially concerning, given the relationship of warmer temperatures to tropical storms. You know, a, a tropical cyclone or hurricane, as we call them in this part of the world, or typhoon, as they call them in Asia, they're, they're really these big heat engines that travel across the ocean. So the ocean warms and there's a lot of um, convection, so moist air is rising and creates this big swirling mass of air and then it at some point becomes self-sustaining and it becomes one of these giant cyclonic storms. So because that's all about the amount of energy that's in the surface of the ocean, if you start heating that up, as we're doing with climate change, there's going to be some relationship there. And so it seems like what's happening is that the intensity of an event once it forms might be getting worse but the frequency of them probably won't change um, but again it's still kind of a frontier area of research around this point you may be wondering given the grim nature of professor Gina's findings regarding the effects of the environment and climate change on human well-being does he ever find his work well depressing uh, that's a good question I think when I tell people about the type of things that I research. So um, I remember my PhD dissertation had one paper about, one chapter about flooding as a natural disaster in Bangladesh, one paper about wildfires, a paper about hurricanes, and another paper about climate change. And I was thinking, well, yeah, it sounds like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's really, it gets depressing at times, particularly because, you know, in the case of wildfires, you're looking at the effects of air pollution on babies' health and on infant mortality. I'm doing another project at the moment looking at child health, particularly child nutrition measurements in the tropics in relation to to climate variability. I'm sure everybody doing research of a similar sort goes through this. You are focused on the results. You're focused on trying to uncover some fact about about society or some truth or something else. And that's there's a rewarding part to that. As I mentioned this story about while I was working with the Red Crescent in Bangladesh, I think it's important to never allow that to purely be an academic exercise. It's important to remember the policy implications for that. It's important to remember that there's real people being affected by these things. As, as a friend of mine puts it, there's to some extent we sit around here thinking, okay, Bad things are bad, and that's it. And that's our research. We identify what these bad things are, and we say, here's how bad this bad thing is. The fact that we're doing this in the context of a revolution that's going on, with data availability and how we're using that data to understand what's happening in the world, means that most of us are not content with just saying bad things are bad, and here's how bad it is. But bad things are bad. Now that we understand this, now that we've quantified it, what can we do about it? Precisely how bad is it? And how does that mean we should invest in it to decrease that problem? So it's pretty depressing on a day-to-day basis if you think about the meaning behind your results. But given, you know, I'm sitting here in a policy school, the, the point is to say, 
I've learned something new about the world. What do we do with it? Thinking through that can actually be very encouraging. And covering a new fact and saying, you know, El Nino led to this much increase in famine across these countries in the tropics, what does that mean for global development policy? By identifying these problems that we didn't necessarily know were there, let's now start identifying what those solutions are. So there's space for optimism. He's optimistic, too, that people who don't currently accept the reality of climate change or who don't think of it as something that will affect them or their children or grandchildren will come to understand otherwise. For me, as someone who's not from the U.S., uh, looking at the way the discourse about climate change has evolved in the U.S. and what that does to global progress on climate change and thinking of the ways that you can convince people. And I, I'm a scientist. It's clear that I will respond to data and information. And so I think if I can increase the, the amount of data and the targeting of that data and information, that will affect some people's points of view. Probably won't affect everybody's point of view. But the trying to make that local, trying to make it relatable, trying to say, you know, this is not just a piece of air is going to get a few degrees hotter and trying to think through what that means. We're trying to say, this is your your money, your income, your well-being, your health, the social stability around you, all these things that we understand on an intuitive level are important to us. We're talking about crime, we're talking about mortality, and saying in the area around you, the county whose name you know and the people who are around you, here's what this effect is going to be. This is not something that's global mean temperature change of two degrees. This is not some abstract thing that um, politicians in Paris or whatever are, are making policy about. This is something which affects not only people here, but also affects you in ways that are measurable and affects you, affects your wallet, affects your pocket and affects your well-being in a way that I think should make, or at least hope would make uh, people sit up and pay attention a little bit more. As opposed to just being, oh, well, you know, I see those pictures of the sad polar bears and... Exactly. Yeah. This, this whole sad polar bear thing is... Uh, I don't know how I feel about that. I'm probably, when I was younger, it was, a, it was motivating for me to see those kinds of things because, you know, I grew up like a lot of people watching nature documentaries and care about the state of the planet. But the more I've gotten into this, I realize that the, the main issue of climate change or the main thing that, that seems to motivate people is thinking about its effect on humans. This is not the polar bear going extinct, which is terrible, of course, um, but this whole idea of the charismatic megafauna, it, it, only a few people will respond as strongly to that. There's other people who will respond to thinking, well, in this, in this poor country that's thousands of miles away from here, here's what's going to happen. This is not something which is either far from the future or distant spatially from where we are. This is something that's happening right here next to us. So it's trying to make it something that enters into our calculus of daily life. On, on the kind of timescales that we think about a lot. So this is not something that's, you know, 100 years away. This is reframing that a little and saying, you know, a child born this year will live to 2100. If you have a child this year, that's the future that they're inheriting. And so trying to not just say, oh, 2100 is really far away, I'll be dead then. This, this is within the lives of people who are around now. So just making it more immediate and more relevant to people is something which I think is important. To see photos of Professor Gina's travels as an environmental researcher, check out his Instagram account. His username is underscore Amir Gina, that's A-M-I-R-J-I-N-A, underscore. 
And that website again, where you can click on a map of the U.S. to see how your area will fare as temperatures rise, is www.impactlab.org. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Radio Harris, subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today's episode was produced by me, Ann Ford. 